Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Jonathan Spire, a columnist for the Jerusalem Post and a fellow writing fellow here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss understanding Lebanon in crisis. Dr. Spire will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Jonathan Spire. Thank you very much, Stacey. I hope everyone can, uh, can hear me okay. If not, then uh, indicate. Um, right, 15 minutes, not a long time to talk about a quite complex and very interesting uh, subject and state of affairs in Lebanon. There are three things I want to quickly uh, get through. Firstly, the current situation, the current very, very dire uh, social and economic situation in Lebanon. Secondly, very briefly, the reasons why Lebanon has reached that state. And lastly, the security implications or potential security implications uh, for Israel. Well, first of all, let's just acquaint ourselves a little bit with some of the, the statistics with regard to Lebanon. You know, Lebanon is currently subject to chronic shortages of imported fuel. Beirut is currently getting about two hours of electricity per day. The shortages of fuel are forcing hospitals, businesses, bakeries to scale back or shut down. The Lebanese pound has lost 90% of its value uh, next to the dollar over the last 18 months of crisis. It's not clear right now how much uh, money there actually is in the Lebanese central bank's reserve. Nominally, there's uh, $17 billion. It's not clear how much of that is really there. According to UN figures, 77% of Lebanese households are unable to purchase sufficient food at the present time. Citizens are being prevented from uh, withdrawing uh, dollars or in, in, in considerable amounts from their bank accounts. They're getting about $100 a day allowed to withdraw. Um, it's about as bad as it could, uh, could possibly be. There has been a collapse of Lebanese infrastructure in terms of fuel, in terms of food provision, in terms of electricity provision, obviously at the height of, uh, of summer, still in the height of summer months. So life for the average Lebanese citizen is extremely, uh, extremely uh, challenging at the present time. Many families, as we said, not even having enough uh, food to eat. Now, that's a whistle-stop tour, of course. The interesting question then is how on earth did Lebanon get to that point. Famously, almost clichedly, Lebanon in the 50s and 60s in its early days of independence was regarded as the Paris of the Middle East. Obviously, that was then torn apart by the arrival of the Palestinians in the late 60s, Palestinian refugees and fighting organizations from Jordan uh, to Lebanon, the outbreak of civil, civil war in 1975 for 15 bitter years of civil war. But there was then, uh, just about 15 years ago, a uh, great new hope after the expulsion of the Syrian occupation, the March 14th movement, if people remember, of, uh, well, well, of, of, uh, of Saad Hariri, son of the murdered Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri. Uh, and now here we are 15 years on in what is, I think, it can be fairly said, the first truly collapsed and failed state uh, of, the, uh, of the Levant. We could perhaps include Syria as well, but there is at least a, a nominal regime uh, operating there in Lebanon all is chaos, there isn't even a government and hasn't been one for, for 10 months. How did we get to this point? Well, look, there are a number, as Lebanon experts will tell you, there are a number of explanatory factors. 
Lebanon was required to borrow enormous sums of money for reconstruction following the civil war. And the result of that is a very, very large national debt encompassing around I think, $69 billion. Around that is 150% of Lebanese uh, GDP. Uh, corruption is and has long been endemic to the Lebanese political system and to the Lebanese financial system. But it is my contention, at least, and not only mine, that the reason for the collapse that we're currently seeing is not only or primarily because of those factors, but it is rather because you must, if looking at Lebanon, add to those uh, genuine uh, structural problems the presence in Lebanon now for nearly uh, 30 years of a sort of hostile takeover bid launched at the country by the Islamic Republic of Iran via its franchise uh, Hezbollah group, uh, a franchise of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. And I would argue that if we think of the, la the last decade and a half as one of the slow advance of Hezbollah and therefore Iran towards full domination, of, uh, of Lebanon, we can also see sort of marching alongside that, the gradual withdrawal of many of those parties and many of those factors, which kind of propped up Lebanese social and economic life and made it possible, despite the presence of the distorting uh, Hezbollah and Iranian uh, element. Hezbollah, of course, launches the war against Israel in 2006 with its kidnapping and murder of a number of uh, IDF soldiers on the border, doesn't seek permission from the government to do that. In 2008, it openly challenges the government on the streets of Beirut and defeats it. From 2018 onwards, Hezbollah is at the center of uh, the largest parliamentary faction, more and more and more moving towards a kind of open Iranian control and ownership of the Lebanese state. Now, from Hezbollah and Iran's point of view, what's supposed to happen is that the official state and the official economy and the official political system kind of keep on formally existing and they act as a kind of uh, carapace, a kind of cover for the true Iranian and Hezbollah domination of the country uh, who wish to use Lebanon as, so, as a springboard, or as, a, as a soil for the prosecution of the Iranian long war against Israel intended to eventually end in uh, Israel's uh, destruction. Now, what's gone wrong with that plan is that as other factors have re realized the role that they're intended to play, they've simply pulled their money out. Most importantly, the Gulf countries, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates have pulled money out of the army. Saudi, the Saudis pulled $4 billion committed to the Lebanese armed forces uh, in 2016, but they've also removed uh, their holdings in the Lebanese central bank uh, tourism from the Gulf, which used to account for something like 7.5% of Lebanese GDP, has ground to a halt. Uh, so, you know, the Gulfies have moved out, uh, and this has had a massive effect on Lebanese economic and social life. Firstly, secondly, US sanctions against Hezbollah and also against elements of the Lebanese leadership have hit hard at the economy too. Now, put that together then with the arrival of around 1.8 million Syrian refugees to Lebanon in the course of the Syrian civil war. Put that together with the emergence of COVID-19, which has hit Lebanon very hard. And then of course the explosion of ammonium nitrate in the port in Beirut, a kind of coup de grace in August 
August 4th, uh, 2020. And you can see that these blows hitting an already very distorted and fragile body have kind of have brought Lebanon to its current state. Now, since March of uh, last year, uh, Lebanon for the first time defaulted on its national debt on a euro bond. It just couldn't pay, which meant then that the IMF moved in with a proposed package of measures for a bailout of the Lebanese economy. But distorted as the economy is, the Lebanese political class was simply not willing to take the kind of reforms necessary to get that money. So the money's not forthcoming right now. Now, the government resigned after the explosion at the port. So for 10 months now, there hasn't been a, govern a government in Lebanon. Uh, Najib Mikati, a former prime minister, is now having his turn on the kind of musical chairs of trying to form a government in Lebanon. And you know, they hope very much that there will be a, a government formed at some stage in the coming days. Mikati is saying he's close to it. Well, we'll see. But the point is, it really couldn't have got any worse uh, than it currently is in Lebanon, politically, socially and economically. Many, uh, I think most observers of Lebanon would say it's at a low point, you know, it's not been at this point since its independence, since it gained its independence in the 1940s. So this is uh, a very, very dire situation indeed. Now, of course, for many of the people listening uh, here and for myself as well, sitting here in Jerusalem, the main question is what security impact might all this have on Israel? Um, the common wisdom, which I've tended to, to share also, has been, well, these conditions mean that Lebanese Hezbollah and Iran don't really have the bandwidth or the time right now for provoking Israel. They're so busy with trying to hold up a collapsed system that the last thing they can really afford is uh, heating up of the border and then clashing with obviously the, the very, very powerful and strong Israel uh, defense forces. This common, commonly held wisdom was challenged, of course, uh, in the uh, first days of the present month with the incident that took place. And we need to perhaps just go through what happened and remind ourselves before I'll then conclude by giving at least what my sense is of what it may mean. Um, on August 4th, three rockets were launched at uh, Israel from the Tyre area in, uh, in Lebanon. This is one of, of, of many such rocket launches. There was a previous one in July 20th. There've been about 20 such launches since 2006, since the war of 2006. Usually they happen when Israel is at war in, a, in an operation against Hamas in Gaza. They're a kind of supposedly act of solidarity and usually they are attributed, they usually aren't claims of responsibility, but they're attributed to uh, Palestinian organizations or Palestinian uh, uh, fighters of one kind or another. On this occasion, Israel chose to take tough action and uh, an airstrike was carried out. The first airstrike for, I think, uh, seven years since uh, 2014 was carried out uh, against targets close to Tyre, where the fight with the shooting came from. A day later, on August 6th, uh, Hezbollah then launched uh, 20 rockets at the Haldov area. Most of them were brought down by Iron Dome. Some others, a few landed in empty areas. And Hassan Nasrallah, Hezbollah's leader, then gave a, a speech uh, saying, you know, that Hezbollah took responsibility for carrying out this action uh, and that Hezbollah deliberately aimed at open areas because, as he claimed, Israel had aimed at open areas also during the airstrikes uh, the previous day. Israel responded with howitzer fire, artillery fire, and at that point, the uh, incident uh, was brought to a close. 
Now, what does all this mean and should, how, how worried should we be by it? First of all, I don't think that this was an attempt by Hezbollah to push towards war. I don't think Hezbollah can afford war or it wants war right now. I think in a way, conversely, what it was, was it an attempt by Israel uh, in the airstrikes on the 5th to try to refuse an emergent situation, an emergent status quo in which Israel is expected to kind of put up with periodic rocket attacks on Israeli targets or on Israeli communities, which are then attributed to nobody or then Palestinian organizations are meant to have independently carried them out. And the reason why Israel is not going to be prepared, and I think rightly not going to be prepared to accept that situation, is because, it, is because it is entirely unrealistic to claim that anybody is launching rockets from south of the Litani without the knowledge of and permission of Lebanese uh, Hezbollah and its IRGC uh, Iranian masters. And the reason for that, I can tell you from some personal experience, I'm one of the few uh, journalists and certainly one of the very few Israeli journalists and analysts who spent some time snooping around south of the Litani River on a couple of occasions. And I can tell you from my own experiences and from, from you know, much study, nothing moves south of the Litani without the permission of Lebanese Hezbollah and the IRGC. They know everything that's going on down there. They have that area very tightly under control, which means that if somebody's launching rockets there anonymously, it's, they're doing so with the permission and very probably the instruction of Hezbollah and the IRGC. Israel therefore doesn't want to accept that equation and Israel, it looks like, is going to try and change that equation by taking very tough action, including apparently airstrikes, uh, when these rocket uh, firings occur. Now, what that means, and on this I'll conclude, is that while I don't think either side is looking for war, and while I think that the deterrence that Israel achieved against Hezbollah in 2006 you know, largely still holds, we know from the experience of 2006 that a spark can launch a conflict even if neither side particularly at that point you know, is looking for it and is looking to go to war. So while I don't think that either Hezbollah or, of course, also Israel are looking to, uh, to move towards conflict, it does look like Hezbollah is trying to impose a new status quo on the situation with regard to this rocket fire. The events of August the 5th indicate that the government of Israel does not intend to simply sit back and accept that change of the status quo. And as a result, there has been a notable rising of tensions on the border. And as we know, you know a spark can sometimes set off a very large uh, fire indeed. So no desire for war. Hezbollah, because of its you know, catastrophic economic and social situation that it's facing, can't really afford a major conflict. But we should note that the incident of early August does, I think, take us into a somewhat heightened state of tension and alert along the northern border. And we should be, I think, and we will be, I think, watching that you know, very carefully uh, in the weeks and months ahead. We'll also be watching, of course, whether Lebanon, if Lebanon does in fact manage to uh, form a government of one kind or another, or if this quite you know, catastrophic situation continues. And in that regard, we should note, finally, that uh, Nasrallah reiterated yesterday his determination to start to bring uh, Iranian oil uh, into uh, into Lebanon for the purposes of dealing with fuel shortages, which would bring that country, I'd say, that would be the next stage in this con this emergent uh, process in which Iran and its local servant are kind of swallowing up Lebanon. There's a big debate here in Israel as to whether that's necessarily good or bad from an Israeli point of view, and I'll be very happy to get that into that in questions if people would like me to. 
um, I think that's my 15 minutes up. So I'll be happy now to move on to trying to answer your questions. And I hope you found this uh, informative. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is from Jay Lewis. Does this collapse present any opportunities for Israel to aid the Lebanese people and therefore undermine the power and influence of Hezbollah in Iran? That's a, that's a fascinating question. Um, as you probably know, I'm probably aware, as the questioner is probably aware and others too, Israel has offered to uh, assist uh, Leban the Lebanese people with donations of fuel and foodstuffs, and it's been conclusively, unsurprisingly, uh, refused. Now, of course, that doesn't end the conversation necessarily. We know that during the Syrian civil war, Israel did carry out a limited but notable and successful uh, project called Operation Provide Comfort, which was uh, which ended up uh, providing foodstuffs and, and vital goods and medicines and medical treatment for Syrians from the rebel-controlled areas of the southwest. And in return, Israel managed to build up a quite successful relationship with uh, some of those rebels, which lasted a while. Now it's over, but it lasted a while. And for as long as it lasted, it, it did a lot of good. Um, we have seen in Lebanon in recent days, most famously in the village of Shwaya on August the 5th, the day of the rocket launches, you know, indications that there are Lebanese, especially from the non-Shia, communities who are pretty much you know tired of this situation of Hezbollah domination and who have had it up to here and who are willing to now start openly defying and resisting this organization that has you know brought their country to ruin so I think it should be a discussion in in you know defense circles here in Israel as to the extent to which and the ways in which Israel can perhaps potentially begin to uh, exploit that to make contact with some of those people to help some of those communities and to to gain influence uh, through that assistance. There is a certain taboo, as the questioner is probably aware in Israel, about all this because of the perceived, and I think it was you know, a fail, the failed uh, alliance with the Lebanese Christian Falange in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's kind of put a damper on, on any notion in much of the Israeli system of this kind of activity. Having said all that, you know, this is not the 1980s anymore, we're in 2021. I think there are opportunities. And I, put, I think, you know, I'm sure there are discussions about this, and I can personally say, at least from, from my hope, you know, I do hope that Israel will be, let's say, creative and imaginative and proactive in some of the activities it could be pursuing north of the border right now. Thank you. And in regards to your last point, Barry Werner asks, how could it be good to have Iran take over Lebanon? Right. Well, this is a big discussion which is uh, taking place. The point is not that it's good, of course. What would be very good would be if the Iranian regime fell and was replaced by a you know, pro-Israel friendly to Israel and pro-Western regime or government. That would be excellent. Given that that does not appear to be imminent, and given that the current situation in Lebanon, and indeed a situation which has pertained for about 50, at least 15 years now, is one in which de facto the Iranians and Hezbollah do control Lebanon. Lebanon is already basically controlled by the Iranians and, the, and their local franchise, local uh, proxies. But the problem is there is a nominal government ruling over Lebanon. There is a, a nominal state still in existence, but it can't actually control the Iranians or Hezbollah, and to a great extent, it's controlled by them. From this point of view, from an Israeli point of view, it might well be preferable to have unambiguity, to remove the cloak from the de facto situation of Iranian domination. Now, why does that matter? Well, I think people can understand it matters quite a lot. If you can imagine a, a war situation between Israel and Iran slash Hezbollah in Lebanon, it might well be preferable 
for Israel to be able to say, look, we're at war with a state. We're at war actually with a state which has been swallowed up by Iran. So we're at war with Iran via Lebanon, rather than saying we're just at war with an organization called Hezbollah. And then facing the situation which we faced in 2006, you know, where the, nom the nominal, very nice, very ineffectual prime minister of Lebanon, then Mr. Fouad Signora, you know, can go to, go to the UN General Assembly and burst into tears at the fact that the nasty Israelis are bombing his infrastructure. And Israel then suffers, you know, a great deal of diplomatic pressure from the Americans who backed Fouad Signora, from, of course, the Europeans, to desist in its war effort. We don't want that. We want unambiguity. So that's, that's the argument in that regard. I'm not saying it's a closed argument. There are those who would counter that and say, no, actually, you know, there are still components of the Lebanese state that do have agency the Lebanese armed forces arguably, you know, could perhaps form a counterweight to, to, to Hezbollah and Iran. You can probably tell from the, uh, I guess the way I framed the argument that I tend to be sympathetic to the view that Lebanon is already an owned uh, colony effectively of the Iranian, Iranian regional empire. And it'd be better if that were to be openly known, but it's a discussion that's ongoing even here in Israel and certainly in the United States, uh, it's a very, very engaged discussion. And in the United States, the people who still think the Lebanese state exists and is worthy of support uh, are still very much in the majority. Thank you so much. That was a fascinating point. Uh, along those lines, Carrie Hillebrand asks, what are the chances that the Lebanese militia and the Lebanese and or the Lebanese army will take on Hezbollah? Do they have the will and capacity? Uh, the short answer is no neither the will nor the capacity. With regard to the Lebanese armed forces itself, uh, you know, the army is, the army contains a very large percentage of Shia soldiers. I mean, they don't do uh, tests by sectarian affiliation in the Lebanese armed forces, so you can't give an accurate figure on it. But, you know, the Shia are well represented within both the Lebanese armed forces and within the Lebanese armed forces officer corps, and within the Lebanese Armed Forces military uh, intelligence, which means that you know you can't really think of it in terms of Hezbollah over here and the army over there. On the contrary, they work very much together, at least on a, a local and tactical level, uh, which means that while there are undoubtedly elements within the army who are pro-Western, who are, who are anti-Hezbollah, in the event that uh, any, any Lebanese prime minister or whoever were to attempt to give an order to the Lebanese armed forces to act against Hezbollah. It's almost unimaginable, but if we can just imagine that for a moment, the result would be the army splitting in two or possibly in three. It wouldn't be that the, you know, notionally 70,000 strong Lebanese armed forces would take on Hezbollah. That's unimaginable. The army would, would split at that point and much of the army would go over to Hezbollah, probably with the hardware uh, which that army has, much of which, by the way, was given by the French and the United States and others who, who want to keep the Lebanese state intact. You see what I mean? So. That's the situation with regard to the army. Now, with regard to the militias, the other militias, uh, the situation is also not, not great. After 1990, when the Syrians came in and effectively ended the civil war, they disarmed all the militias except for Hezbollah. At that time, Hezbollah was fighting Israel in the south, if people remember, prior to uh, 2000. Um, which means that Hezbollah, since 1990, of course, has grown exponentially into something that arguably is in many ways a stronger army anyway that the Lebanese armed forces. It's not really a militia anymore. It is an army. In Israel, they like the, the people, the chief of staff calls it the terror, terror army. You know? So, it, you know, it's an army today. These militias, the Druze, the, the Lebanese forces of the Christians and so on, they do exist and they have weaponry still. And they could certainly make trouble for Hezbollah 
in a straight conventional fight, they wouldn't have a chance. But having said that, Hezbollah doesn't dominate the entirety of Lebanon. In the northern Bikar, in towns like Tripoli, you know, where there's a Sunni majority, Hezbollah can't, his fighters can't just go there and wander around. Those people are armed. They are very much anti-Hezbollah. And whilst they couldn't sort of take on Hezbollah in a straight fight and defeat it, it's certainly imaginable, you know, a kind of perhaps Syrian style, you know, Sunni insurgency keeping Hezbollah and its allies very, very busy indeed. That, I think, is imaginable in a Lebanese context and could well happen. I draw people's attention to a very interesting incident that took place, I think it was August the 3rd uh, this month, uh, in a place called Halde, which is just south of, of Beirut, where a senior Hezbollah local uh, officer, a guy called Ali Shibli, was shot dead at a wedding he was attending. And then at the, his funeral was fired upon using RPGs and small arms and three additional Hezbollah supporters were killed. Now, this area of Halde is Sunni area. It's a very strong tribal area. And there was apparently a tribal dispute going on between Shibli and uh, I think it was called the, the Hossein family, a, a Sunni family attached to one of the powerful tribal structures. So there's lots of stuff bubbling on beneath the surface. And this kind of stuff, you know, harassing of Hezbollah fighters, local resistance, local insurgency, I think is very much within the bounds of possibility, but a kind of open war, you know, in which Hezbollah would be defeated by a rival paramilitary group, I'm afraid currently is not on the cards because they're just so much stronger than all the others. But they can be, you know, they're not invulnerable by any means. Thank you. Uh, actually, leads me into the next question. Terry Rosen asks, can Hezbollah be destroyed? Is international aid needed? Uh, will, is the Lebanon government forming possibly at the start? Well, with regard to can Hezbollah be uh, destroyed, the point is Hezbollah cannot be destroyed, I think, by any financial or political acts of the so-called international community. And the answer, uh, the question as to why that is, is because Hezbollah has its own economy anyway. Hezbollah doesn't suffer from you know, the decline in the economy that I was sort of briefly uh, outlining a few minutes ago, because Hezbollah has its own economy. Hezbollah has its own ways of gaining income. It smuggles Iranian oil into Syria and sells it to the Syrian government. It smuggles cannabis through the Gulf and to Europe. It smuggles uh, captagon tablets. Uh, in very, very large numbers to both the Gulf and to Europe. And thus, through all these measures, it, uh, its economy and the people around it are doing very well indeed. So even if there were international sanctions against Lebanon or against this other aspect, element of Lebanon, or against Hezbollah leaders themselves and structures, yeah, they have their own underground economy, which of course vastly distorts the real economy, but keeps them pretty much safe. So whether or not a government is formed whether or not there are sanctions, whether or not there's an IMF aid package eventually or not, and therefore whether or not the Lebanese state survives, the Hezbollah state is not dependent on any of that. It has its own sources of income, its own, after all, large grant worth you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, from Iran itself. So it's not in danger of, of running out of funds. Can it be destroyed? I think in the long term, it, uh, it can be destroyed. Um, but I suspect, frankly, that the way in which it will eventually be destroyed is when the Islamic Republic of Iran itself falls, which I don't think is imminent necessarily, but I think probably you know, will happen in the end. The, the usual fate of brutal dictatorships eventually uh, is to fall. And, I, and when Iran falls, Hezbollah will fall, you know, because Hezbollah is, a, is, a, is nothing more or less than a franchise of the IRGC. It has no 
potential for independent existence, except maybe as a small political party with a few guns, you know, without the support of Islamic Republic of Iran. Thank you. So, you. so you brought up the explosion in the Beirut port last year. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of confusion about it at the time. David Levine asked, do we now know what really caused the explosion and whether the chemicals were actually part of a Hezbollah cache? We don't know conclusively with regard to that, but it's certainly, it certainly is the case that Hezbollah uh, had the run and has the run of the port itself. It's the case that the port authority, the official port authorities you will not be surprised to hear were corrupt and incompetent. So for the re for those two reasons, you know, this massive uh, stash of uh, ammonium nitrate was able to build to be built up. And we know that ammonium nitrate <clears throat> is uh, one of the preferred uh, explosives of explosive materials of Iran, IRGC and Hezbollah. And that, you know, large consignments have been found in IRGC hands. Uh, elsewhere in the world, in, in London, for example, if people remember a few years ago, a large consignment was discovered in a number of private houses as part of a, a IRGC uh, effort on British soil. So put all that together and you've got, I would suggest, you know, some pretty good circumstantial evidence to suggest this very well may have been part of Hezbollah's activities. But, you know, of course, we don't have a smoking gun and, and the answer to that, we won't have one either. And the reason for that is obvious and it goes back to what we've been discussing. And it is that the Lebanese state today, including its law enforcement authorities, you know, basically work for Hezbollah or certainly can't work against them. So there isn't really any mechanism that can actually do a real investigation into this. And we've been through all this, of course, before people will remember the special tribunal on Lebanon, uh, which was supposed to be looking into the murder of Rafik uh, al-Khariri back in 2005. And it reached fairly clear conclusions that a number of Hezbollah men were the people uh, who were responsible for the killing. But of course, you know, it had no teeth, no ability to apprehend anybody, no ability to even order those men to come and testify, and they never did. So, uh, you know, so that's that's the situation also with regard to this uh, issue. Wonderful. So one last question. Jack Berkowitz asks, forgive me, but when has a hardline Islamic terrorist world ever considered finances and economic well-being before initiating violence and hostilities? Yeah, no, I don't think, well, it's not that they're considering economic well-being out of a sense of altruism. I think that they are deterred by Israel's, Israel's superior weaponry, and they are frightened of the destruction that the Israeli armed forces can bring down on, uh, on uh, Lebanon. They're busy trying to keep a lid on the situation in Lebanon right now, not because they care about people, but because they care about their own power and their own governance. And if they end up, because of their economic mismanagement, you know, provoking something like an Arab Spring type reaction, i.e., you know, thousands and thousands of people in the street in Lebanon, which, by the way, was happening just prior to COVID-19. Uh, there were very large demonstrations taking place. They don't want that. They don't need that. They don't have superpowers. They can't just easily control demonstrations of thousands of people any more than anybody else can. So it means that they do have to take all that stuff into account. But let me be clear, of course, the main thing which is deterring them is not social or economic considerations. It is Israel's superior weaponry and their own desire to keep their own equipment intact. And maybe above and beyond that, of course, the desire of the Islamic Republic of Iran, who are their masters, to keep their 150,000 rockets and missiles facing Israel for use in the event, I, I think, of Israeli potential Israeli action against the Iranian nuclear program. And that's what that stuff's there for. So all these considerations are, are in there. But I, um, 
you know, I wouldn't, uh, I would say it's important not to be simplistic. I mean, the notion that sort of terrorists are just kind of lunatics frothing at the mouth who aren't capable of thinking about economics and, and uh, politics is, is not serious. These are our enemies and we need to assess them correctly, coolly and accurately. And they're not stupid and they are doing governance and they understand if you're doing governance, you know, you do have to factor in issues of economics, issues of popular control, issues of popular legitimacy. And I think Lebanese Hezbollah has to do that. And I think that it does do it. Thank you so much for that point. Uh, before we leave, can you just tell our audience where we can find some more of your work? Sure. So I have uh, my own website, which is called jonathanspire.com. And most of the articles that I write from all various publications, I put them up at that place as well after they've been published. So that's a kind of great, huge bank of articles over the last now going back nearly 15 years, I think. Of articles, there's a search function there. So you can put in Syria, for example, and read a whole bunch of Syria because that's what takes your fancy or whatever else. Uh, we also have my organization, which works together with Middle East Forum, called Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis. Um, and that website is called mideastcenter.org. And there we have a whole bunch of interesting articles from friends and correspondents throughout the region, in Iran, in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere that we're constantly uh, publishing. So a whole bunch of interesting granular uh, regional stuff there. And I have my bi-weekly column in the Jerusalem Post. And my stuff pops up here and there also in other places too. So that'll probably give you enough or more than enough of me if you if you want to get into it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Spire, for joining us today. Thanks, Stacey, very much. Thanks yeah. to everyone. Bye. For our viewers and listeners, there will be no Israel Insider this week, but please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Sonar Chaptai. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.